newscast from yours truly. We're on a roll. To keep us on this amazing roll, we have an amazing guest who you may have heard of. I'm not sure, but maybe you have. Her name is Anne Coulter. And before you all switch off, please stay. <laughs> We're going to have, I hope, is a good and interesting conversation about the world. Anne, of course, is the author of 13 best-selling New York Times books, which is 13 more than I've ever managed. And obviously, a big feature of the culture of the last 20, 30 years, I would say, in terms of provoking people, enraging people, amusing people. I don't think her role as a comedian has actually been fully appreciated, but she is very funny. She's the only person actually who can write a book that made, whose title made me laugh. Literally, the title of the book, her anti-immigration book called Adios America, just, I'm sorry, but I couldn't get past the title. It was funny. And, and in, in, a, in a terribly cheeky kind of way. And I want you all to believe, I don't believe, I don't think of anybody as Briar or someone I can't talk to or, or and I don't. Anne is, is, we've met a couple of times and I've really enjoyed every time we've met. And so I want to welcome you, Anne, to the Dishcast and to the uh, audience that we have of really smart, funny, interesting people. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Good to be here. Do you remember the first time we met? I do. It was after Bill Maher, and I came up to you at the cocktail party and tried to convince you to, to, to vote for Trump. It was 2016, you because you everything you were saying, it is the old Democrat policy of caring about the working class, the middle class, rural Americans, immigration. So anyway, that was the first time. Yeah, I, I look, the truth <laughs> is that I'm, I've always been, even though whatever people tell me, I've always been a pretty moderate conservative. I'm not a lefty. I'm not a liberal. I believe in the working middle class is the bulwark of our society. And I came from them and I'm deeply irritated constantly by my peers in the elite. So in that we have in common, but I, we'll get to Trump in a little bit. I want to I want to start with where you're from. How did you get to where you are today, as it were? So where were you born? Connecticut. I grew up in New Canaan. Very happy family. Two older brothers. That totally helped with the fighting. And then I went to Cornell University of Michigan Law School, practiced law in New York for a couple of years. And then there was the 1994 election. And I really didn't want to leave New York. I don't like Washington. I love New York City. But I just thought, I mean, much... I, I guess things never change. We didn't... I don't think we called them establishment Republicans back then. But with establishment Republicans, the 94 election was earth shattering. It was the first time Republicans taken Congress in nearly half a century. And a lot of really, really conservative Republicans had won in crazy places. That's, you know, thank you, Bill Clinton. We got so much out of Bill Clinton. And I thought, you know, if things are going to change, people who actually believe things need to go work in Washington. So I applied to one Senator Spence Abraham because he had been founded the Federal Society at Harvard. So I figured he'd be judiciary went to Washington. And um, then two years later, MSNBC started. And I started with MSNBC their first day on, on air. They used to have conservatives on. Human events let me, came let me, to let me. Go back one second. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> tell me about your parents. Like, what, what did they do for a living, if you don't mind my asking? And, and, and what was the atmosphere you grew up in? Did you grow up in a, a conservative household or a liberal household? Or, or you're in New Canaan? You said you're in Canaan? New Canaan, yes. 
Yes, very conservative. Most of Connecticut, Fairfield County, certainly was more George Bush Republican, and we were Reagan Republican. So yeah, and we talked. My 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 father was a lawyer for a copper company and a union buster, and my mother was a stay-at-home mother and two older brothers, and it was great. I mean, my father used to point out that no matter where people grew up, they could grow up in the worst, you know, slum <laughs> in the country, and people always say about how they were, where they were brought up, good place to grow up. <laughs> so that's what I say about New Canaan, good place to grow up. <laughs> now, there are two kinds of people, aren't there? There are people who, like me and you, actually, who grew up in pretty conservative households and continued to be conservative in a variety of different ways. But others, I think more more common probably, just become liberals and lefties. They go to college and they change their their stripes and they adopt the mores of their own peers most of the time. So what is it about people like us that we actually liked the politics that we were brought up with? Was there was there anything that you you can remember that really jibed with you independently? Well, Part this may be self-flattering, but in a way, whether you you grow up in a Democrat household or a Republican household, it, it, in a way, it's kind of harder to stick to that in college because people will say, "Oh, that's you're just following your parents," so you better know what your arguments are. And also, we talked about it all the time. I think I sort of noticed with my friends in New Canaan, if they were raised in Republican households where they never talked about politics, they'd go to college, and the cool thing was to. No, I'm thinking for myself. See, I disagree with my parents because they had no no basis. They hadn't argued about things. Whereas in the Coulter household, we considered Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners complete failures if we didn't argue about both religion and politics. My oldest brother always said the maxim that it's impolite to discuss religion and politics was invented by liberals so that you would never <laughs> air things out. <laughs> It's funny, my family was the same, like completely an Irish Catholic family, so very different. But yes, Christmas was, first of all, you couldn't see the other side of the room for the smoke. Everyone was <laughs> Secondly, it always would get progressively bad. My mother would pick a fight, then it would get another fight, then it would be out. I would have an argument. Every, at some point, someone would scream at somebody else, you're ruining Christmas again. And, <laughs> That happened to you. It happened to me all the time. And I grew up with a with a raging argument around me. And my mother, my dad, you know, my dad was not like this. My dad was sane, sort of solid Englishman, didn't really say much. But my mother was this garrulous, borderline personality disorder. She would have on the equivalent <laughs> of NPR all day long, Radio 4, and constantly be arguing with it. As a little boy, I just grew up listening to my mom talking to the radio. And... <laughs> And of course that was interesting to me. And of course it was. And, and, and so I got into, in, in, in high school, I would have fights all the time. I, I famously had fights. I hate to brag about this again. It's not bragging, but I was on the same school bus <laughs> as Keir Starmer, who now runs the Labour Party in Britain. We were in the same class together. We were next to each other, Starmer Sullivan, alphabetically. And we fought every day. Yelled. <laughs> Shouted, it was the 70s, it was Thatcher versus the anti-Nazi league. It was it was huge fun and I loved it. Yes. Um 
But yes. I also realized at the time, my politics was way too sophisticated for a 12-year-old. I, <laughs> I shouldn't have this grasp of so many different things. Were you precocious? I think so, yes, with politics, definitely. Partially because my oldest brother was very political. He was precocious. He, what was it? <laughs> you just reminded me of this. This is like being the little girl who told Abraham Lincoln to grow a beard. There was this place, the Source Library in Stamford, Connecticut, and and these high school kids would get together and discuss politics and read books. And I don't really know the details of it, but they were debating back then. It was the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, and they'd have stage debates. So they wanted to get somebody to oppose the Equal Rights Amendment. And nobody opposed the Equal Rights Amendment. The Republican Party had it on its platform. And so they heard about this woman, Phyllis Schlafly, and uh, they called her up and she said, huh, I haven't heard of this. Let me look into it. <laughs> and so she looked into it, came to the Source Library, and that started her campaign. And she single-handedly stopped the Equal Rights Amendment. And she was right, by the way. I mean, for people who aren't familiar with I'll just say very quickly what the argument is. It isn't that women shouldn't have equal rights, at least to do the same job with the same tests, not what they're doing in the military now, where you only have to do, you know, two push-ups from your knees. But the idea was things would be moved from small organizations, from legislatures, from state governments, from federal governments to the courts, because it's just this open-ended constitutional amendment that sounds good, and now we're just going to let unelected judges decide everything for us. So that's the argument in a nutshell. What Did you see um, Mrs. America, the, the miniseries about Phyllis Schlafly? I did not, because I assumed they wouldn't do it right. I wrote about Phyllis Schlafly, telling the truth about Phyllis Schlafly in my second book, Slander, and I do have liberal friends. And one of them was is older than I and a big feminist who had fought for equal rights and everything. And she read Slander. I met her when she was writing in a magazine article on conservative women. And she actually is rather famous. And she said when she read that section on Phyllis Schlafly in my book, she had no idea. Phyllis Schlafly was very smart. The one time she was wrong in a debate, and I'm sure this movie Sorry, this is a long answer to, did you see that movie? I'm sure the movie didn't have this part. The one time she was wrong in a debate was when she claimed that women had, or Harvard Law School had been admitting women since, you know, X date, who knows, you know, late 60s or something. And the reason she was wrong was she had gone to graduate school at Harvard and her professors thought she was so brilliant. They pushed to make an exception for her, let her go to Harvard Law School but instead, she said, mm, I'm going back to Illinois to get married and have kids. Interesting fact, no? She, it is interesting. She is a, a very interesting. Was she a model for you, a role model in some ways? I mean, she probably the, one of the most influential political figures of the latter part of the 20th century. Yes. Did it all herself, essentially. Was pretty yes. much condescended to by many people, despised by the media establishment, set up her own newsletter, organized herself, and also engaged in the kind of provocations that you occasionally do. This, the way she would begin every speech by saying, I thank you all and I thank my husband for giving me permission <laughs> to, to be here tonight. Yes. Yes. She was, was very good at that. conservative irony? Was that... Was that, was that uh... <laughs> Or trolling, the birth of trolling. What was so, she, 
if only we had someone like her now, because she was leading an army of women with this newsletter, but she, the person at the top was really smart in that way. And sorry to bring him up again, but like the molecular opposite of Trump, you have an army of normal, sane middle class and upper middle class and and working class Americans who were begging for leadership. And she would, I can't think of a time that she was wrong on an issue. When I went to work for the Senate Judiciary Committee, there was some really stupid thing before. It was the UN resolution on the rights of the child or something. And it was a waiting set. And of course, Clinton had signed. It was waiting Senate for confirmation. And the funny thing was the guy who was in charge of it was Jesse Helms. So, you know, the resolution came in, sat on it in his inbox, and it just gathered dust there. It was not going any place. And yet, and anyone who works in the Senate back there would confirm this, every day we would get hundreds, perhaps thousands, but hundreds of letters from all over America denouncing this. Why? Because Phyllis Schlafly had written about it in her newsletter. Oh, she could mobilize an army. But she was smart. And now we have the armies without the smart general. Yes. She was also, I mean, she was fascinated by defense. I yes. She, was, she, she did not accept in any way, and this is what I find so fascinating, really, is she really was breaking glass ceilings all the time. But yes. because I mean, she went into rooms and said, I, I'm... She was very much against Kissinger. She was very much against detente. She was, and she was supposed to be defense secretary at one point. I mean, they were thinking about it, and then she was passed over for reasons that were obviously about her more than anything else. But so she has, she was an influence on you, presumably. She was one of these people you saw, well, this one individual could do a whole lot by herself and also herself. Like she and Thatcher, these are early people who are just actually just pioneering their own politics as women uh, yes, without even really mentioning that they're women. Well, Flashley did, of course. I mean, Flashley did mention it. Yes. Hero. I mean, I didn't pay that much attention, but the attack right. on the public sector unions, man, I wish we had. I mean, that's why I at one time had great hope for Chris Christie, but that was kind of the beginning and the end of his greatness. What were the core, you think, principles of your particular brand of conservatism? I mean, was there something that, that a couple of things that really were the key things for you, key principles, uh, if you were to winnow it down? That's a good question. I read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, very young. And who's that? I was such an idiot. It was such a long time ago. Road to Serfdom. Right. So I read that young, and he was not as great as the book because Brent Bozell, the original Brent Bozell, wrote a couple of, what was it, with no apologies, I think, Goldwater's book. And I read those in, in high school. What else was I reading? Oh, Milton Friedman. When I, my parents traveled a lot. And they used to have this program in New York City, really heavily pushed by the New York Times, called the Fresh Air Fund. And they'd send kids from, you know, the greatest city in the world, an exciting city with subways and world-class museums, a gigantic park, send them to the boring, stultifying suburbs in Connecticut for this alleged advantage of 
fresh air. So anyway, my parents would leave town for like, you know, three, four weeks at a time. And I was the youngest. And also I was a responsible girl. So I wouldn't have a babysitter or have to stay at anybody's house when I was, you know, 13, 14. And I'd immediately hop on to Metro North, go into New York City and live with my brother who was in law school and living on the Upper East Side. So when he and his roommate would come home from classes, they gave me reading assignments. There was William Simon's book, I forget what it was, and it was and one of the Milton Friedman books. And then they well, quiz me on it. Late, are we talking about the late seventies or eighties here? Yes. And they'd quiz me on it before we were allowed to go out and have Anne drink underage. <laughs> so <laughs> so you were rewarded for getting all the way through Milton Friedman and answering the right questions. Which yes. the bar. <laughs> exactly. So essentially your conversion to conservatism was well lubricated, shall we say, as it always should be, one, one, one should acknowledge. So when you came to Cornell, you were ready for fight. You were oh, ready yes. Oh, yes. And if anything, that just made me more conservative because sometimes, I mean, I'm sure you understand this, probably your listeners do, not acrimonious arguments. And unlike your Christmas and Thanksgiving dinners, our arguments were not particularly acrimonious. They were happy and boisterous. But it's like playing tennis. You're trying to get, you're taking a position that you may not even hold. But this is how learning occurs. You make your best argument. I mean, this is the basis of our legal system. You make your best argument, they make your their best argument. And when it came to arguing with college liberals, even when I'd start off with, you know, a far right position that I was just, you know, trying on for size, I'd end up convincing myself. I remember when I was at Oxford, I was in the debating union because that's, I love that shit like you did. And, but I had a habit of always picking what I thought would be the losing side because yes. it, it was just <laughs> more fun. It, it was just more energizing. I didn't mind, I didn't mind losing the vote, which was pretty predictable in a lot of these questions, but I did, <laughs> I did enjoy just the sheer fun of it. And I yes. wonder how, how have we lost that? I mean, it feels as if debate is so fraught with people desperate not to say things that might rub people up, as opposed to this free-for-all that we grew up with. What and these and the kids in college today do not seem in any way turned on by this kind of to and fro. How do you explain why our generation and the current generation are so different in affect? Or are we exaggerating it? No, I think we're not exaggerating it at all. I don't know if this explains the root cause, as they say, but part of it is it's just, it's lazy and it's easy to make a living. Online, it's called clickbait. On television, I mean, when I started out for 15 years, I was regularly fairly regularly on ABC, NBC, CBS, on MSNBC, on CNN. I've never worked for Fox. The only network I was ever employed by was MSNBC. And now, no, now it's got to be, well, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN. There will be no disagreement. And they get crazier and crazier in the things they say because there's no one to argue with them. 
And I would argue that's easy and they can attract their 2 million person audience and be on autopilot. They could be half asleep. They could be drugged up. They know what they're going to say. They know what their guests are going to say. And it goes back and forth like a pre-programmed tennis game. But we're a country of 320 million people. And if you're happy just coasting along with, well, we got our 2 million. That's, that's all we need. The advertisers are happy. But whether it's online or on television, and no one under 50 even has a television. I, I mean, I, who are these 2 million people who just want sweet nothings whispered in their ear all day? And to hear this, and the comedy shows, you know, Colbert, and I forget the other one, they're indistinguishable from a show on MSNBC. At, at any hour of day, you can hear the same sweet nothings being whispered to liberal. I think it's very boring, and it looks like 98% of the American people find it boring. But it's lazy, it's easy, and they make a few million dollars. But that would also be true of Fox, obviously. I mean, that they I'm also... I'm not including um, Fox without yes. mentioning... If the alternative is Hannity and Combs, um, which was the old one, it was. It, I'd rather just have Hannity, frankly, because <laughs> it, it's, it's honest. But they don't have people on to disagree with them. And now, my issue is, isn't that more interesting? Wouldn't that get more viewers? Isn't conflict actually interesting i i don't watch cable news i haven't watched it in forever because it's just i i, I why i, I mean it's, i know it's i don't want to see i mean you know who wants to look at joy reed every night or for that matter <laughs> tucker looking constipated every night and he's querying eyes isn't no, it and it's all on twitter you can get it all on twitter a lot faster yeah, you can. The I think you're the right. Wing. I think they can't switch. It's hard to switch to something more interesting now for the same reason. Take Saturday Night Live, which used to be very funny, but then they got less funny and more as I think it's Seth Meyers came up with the term clapter, where people aren't laughing, but they're approving of what your humor is. Yes, we approve. And they started going much more for clapter. Well, then as a result, it gets to be a vicious circle. The people who show up for the live shows aren't going to laugh at something that's un-PC. They want to engage in clapter. This is our little group. Oh, aren't we cool? We are applauding at things that make fun of Republicans. So then someone comes along and does a sketch, you know, there's a dress rehearsal, does a sketch that's actually really funny and the audience won't laugh. <laughs> They've changed the audience. So how do you convince people? No, you, it's safe to turn on the TV again. We're going to have something smart and interesting when Anyone who wants something smart and interesting has stopped, has cut the cable for TV and isn't going to those sources anymore. So it becomes self-reinforcing. When we were coming of age in the late 70s, early 80s, conservatism was intellectually countercultural, uh, mm -hmm. it seemed to me. It was, it was a critique of the post-war welfare state. It was a critique of detente. It was a critique of the 60s in some respects, but it was also very intellectually exciting. Like, I remember thinking, these papers, these new journals that I'm reading, whether it be public interest, whether it be the national interest, whether it be, for that matter, the New Republic or National Review, there was an excitement about intellectual life. And from Thatcher onwards, there was the sense that we were, that we were more intellectual in some ways than the left in terms of our rigor and in terms of our empirical 
background. I mean, when I look at the work of people like Nathan Glazer, when I look at the, the work mm-hmm. of, of, of many of those people who were, you know, neocons domestically more than someone like Daniel Bell, these were brilliant people who had what has happened because <laughs> I don't see any of that really happening today. Was it that uh, my one possibility is that it became the victim of its own success in some ways what was radical about neoliberal economics or deregulation in the 70s and 80s just became part of the background of life. It, it happened. We forgot about it. It's still there. And the right just ran out of things to do in that sense <laughs> and then got on this sort of religious right kick as a kind of way to keep it going somehow, which didn't really kept you going for a few. So how do we, let me put it this way, what how do you compare the conservatism of then with the conservatism that we are now dealing with today? Is it the same thing? Is it completely different? That's a really good point you make that makes me think of something that that they were victims of their own success. And I think that is true, it hadn't occurred to me, of institutions, much like Harvard, <laughs> the Ivy League schools, right? Okay, now they're coasting on the name. When they're giving up on SATs and they're only admitting people on the basis of either skin color or how much daddy donated to the university, there's really no no point to these universities. And by the way, the reason parents historically have been willing to pay $200,000 for a college degree is a college degree is a substitute Nobody thinks you learn anything at college anymore. That $200,000 is your way of submitting an, an IQ test to an employer, which the Supreme Court ruled unconstitutional. So instead of just giving employees a 10-minute IQ test, your parents have to pay $200,000. You have to waste four years of your life. Well, it's fun. I mean, not waste it. You get a great vacation for four years. There's nothing funner than college, which is why I've been recommending that kids just take the SAT maybe apply to colleges and either take your highest SAT score or the best college acceptance letter you of the best college you got into and submit that to employers. That's a rough approximation of an IQ score. But anyway, Harvard, I think the top colleges have destroyed or and if it's not recognized yet, it will be soon enough or maybe go to a top state college. And Thank National you. Review, about- oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, what are you going to say? National Review, I think, has did the same thing. I mean, they had people like John um, O'Sullivan and and Peter Brimelow, and boy, they're stirring things up, mostly about immigration. And of course, they get defought, fired, and defamed. And so, National Review has been coasting on the reputation of what it was when I was a little kid. And, you know, that was like my primer reading it. And it used to be really funny and sassy and smart. And now it's David French. It's Rich Lowry who attacked the Covington kids. So the, a lot of these institutions are, as you said, and hadn't occurred to me, victims of their own success. They're relying on the name to just coast. And so there are smart and interesting conservatives, but it's in none of the places you used to look or you would think to look. And if I had time, I could probably come up with more, but there's Heather McDonald. There is Peter Brimelow. There is, who's a smart let me, let me suggest another Charles Murray. Outlived its own success, which is the Republican mm-hmm. Party. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now, the Republican Party... <laughs> When did it really crash? It seems to me that the Iraq war is something that 
conservatives have not were reluctant to acknowledge was a huge discredit of the Republican national security establishment. And the 2008 collapse was kind of a repudiation of excessive deregulation of stock markets and the way in which debt had been built up privately and publicly in a way that was unsustainable. Those two things seem to me to be destroy Republican credibility on foreign policy and to some extent on domestic policy. And I can understand the the Republican Party, rather like the Tory party in Britain, finding some way forward to struggle and reinvent themselves that were not entirely still free market because much of that had already been done. But the the, the conversion of conservatism into this international force for human rights and democracy, the George W. Bush second inaugural speech, which you mm-hmm, can mm-hmm. probably remember, was this Disaster. was that a moment that they lost the country or that they lost their integrity? That is a great point. It has a lot to do with Bush, Bush the second. He also, you'll remember in his second term, I think this is when he destroyed the midterms for us. He was pushing amnesty. Amnesty and nation building, the molecular opposite (laughs) of what any normal person would want. The Wall Street bailout, uh, I see that more as the collapse of the Democratic Party. It used to be that the Democratic Party was, at least they claimed to be, were the party of the working class, were the party of the union members, were the party of the flyover people and the rural Americans vote for us. I mean, that's why Bill Clinton won, but then Bill Clinton won, and he suddenly married the Democratic Party to Wall Street. And uh, wow, it made the parties easier. They were going to the same parties anyway, same actresses. They're all in the Hamptons every weekend. They don't have to pretend to care about the flyover people anymore, whom they they always hated it and it was kind of embarrassing. There is no room in the Democratic Party for a Dick Gephardt or a Walter Mondale or an old what Joe Biden used to be. Republicans think they're the party of Wall Street. <laughs> I mean, that's the most pathetic thing. They give you no money. They are all voting for the Democrats and you keep sucking up to them. I mean, neither Trump nor, I promise you, Joe Biden is going to get rid of the carried interest loophole. We're at, but they, they keep promising to. I mean, that's part of the reason I liked Trump. I don't know if you remember that debate where Trump had been campaigning against the carried interest loophole, which he kept calling the carried interest deduction. And it came up during one of the debates and John Kasich jumps in <laughs> and says, no, I don't think we should get rid of it because investment is important. <laughs> Oh, good grief, Republicans. Your love for Wall Street is unrequited. It's going to be really fun going after Wall Street. But they haven't recognized it. So, I mean, that's a problem. I was a huge supporter of the Iraq War and Afghanistan, and I think I still would be. But my point would be, I didn't say, and let's hang out for 20 years and teach them about women's studies and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. No, go in, take out the bad guy and leave. And now well, let's, I... Let's, uh-huh. I'm going to press you on some of that a little bit, because uh-huh. let's say we did that in Iraq. Obviously, immediately ISIS would have sprung up. There was no way that country was going to stick together. It was obviously deeply divided by sectarian and religious issues as well as who had worked for the previous regime who hadn't. I, myself, having supported the Iraq war, conceded afterwards that I was completely, I had mis, I misread a whole bunch of stuff. Are you, uh, did you have such a moment of saying this, not only did I get this wrong, but this will teach me in future 
not to expect to do this kind of thing. Yes, but probably for a different reason than you. And that is because we can't trust the generals and the foreign policy community, as they call it. So, yes, absolutely. Yes, the blob. Absolutely. If it came up again, no, I can't trust you people. So no, no. But if it had been waged the way and have waged it, the way I think a better country would have waged it, that isn't, I mean, man, looking at Washington, everything just needs to be shut down and built from the ground up. It is all corrupt. The CIA, the FBI, absolutely the military. Um, It can't be done. You can't, that's not a very conservative thing to say, is it? I mean, these are institutions that have been around forever. And yes, they have their flaws, but you can't just suddenly scrap them. When I hear people like Bannon and so on saying, just get rid of the administrative state, you can't. You can reform it, you can finesse it, you can shrink it somewhat, but this whole notion we're going to start from scratch seems to me to be just a rhetorical overkill. Mine was a metaphor, but you would have to, it would be very aggressive in getting rid of civil service employees. I mean, one of the hilarious things that has happened in the last few years, we have these huge, you know, supply chain holdups. And then we find out our secretary of transportation has been on childcare leave for what the past four or five weeks, Pete Buttigieg. And you realize not only do we not need the secretaries, or at least a democratic administration doesn't need the secretaries, because it's all the democratic civil servants, they they run on autopilot, and most of them I don't think are doing anything. But you don't need most of the bureaucrats. I would have a very, I, I, I mean, yes, it would be very difficult, and maybe it's not the number one thing you do, but it's it, toward the top, very aggressive program. And I think Congress has to pass a law because you can't fire somebody who works for the government. Oh, what a surprise. And that's how it ends up like this. You have to be able to fire people and fire a lot of them spread throughout the federal government. The number of government employees we have is just preposterous. I want to home in on, you mentioned Peter Brimelo, John O'Sullivan, and immigration. And so let's go right at that. How do you respond to the to the argument that mm-hmm. well, Brimelow and O'Sullivan, well, I don't think John really fits this bill, but Brimelow definitely seems to be an explicit white nationalist in as much as he really believes that countries should be racially homogeneous. Now, we can't, first of all, isn't that kind of a, a rather ugly and retrograde kind of thing to say? And secondly, we can't be. We are Whatever you think, this is the most multiracial, diverse country that has ever existed in human history. The idea that we can have white nationalism in a country that is this mixed up, where is that coming from? (laughs) Well, first of all, I am quite sure he explicitly denies that he is white nationalist. Even what you describe, and yeah, I mean, what, yeah, that the horses out of the barn on how diverse we already are. I think the question is how much more diverse we're going to become. But even on your description, that countries are better off when they are more homogeneous, that that isn't, I think, white nationalism. It might be nationalism. In fact, I think it's more diverse. I mean, you know, when you travel around- China, for example, China won't allow anyone who's non-Han to be any part of their government or system. And Japan. I mean, no Look other at Japan. Oh my gosh. 
<laughs> Japan is is would rather die than become multiracial, right? I mean, they would rather <laughs> literally die out. I mean, that's roughly what they're saying. So I, I, but I think it's it's really just the it's the saying the exact opposite of diversity is a strength, and you know I'm always joking about it on Twitter. Diversity is a problem. We may be able to deal with it better than other countries, but stop. It's like saying, you know, broken legs are a strength. No, we can set them very well in this country. We're good at it, but it is a problem. I just tweeted. I just saw this morning. Okay, I don't know the details yet. I probably shouldn't have tweeted anything about it. It's from my favorite newspaper, Daily Mail. There's a story about a New Jersey school district. I mean, I won't even go through last week's version of this, which was completely ridiculous. And I think racist against some poor white Jewish teacher. But this week, it was a little It was a kid in like junior high school. He's taking a math test. He asked for extra time. And the teacher says, I don't negotiate with terrorists. People laugh. It's funny. Kid is taking a math test. Ah, but Andrew, it is a Muslim child. So, oh, all hell breaks loose. There are going to be lawsuits. I don't think even people aren't even thinking anymore. It's a lot. It's been 20 years since 9-11. Are you kidding me? If this were said to a white child, and this is just, this is something I was casually reading, just flipping through what's going on in the news in you know, the 10 minutes I'm waiting for you to sign up to the computer. Diversity is a disaster. Every place it is. Life, there are just fewer transactions costs. There are a few benefits, but they are very few and far between. And being lied well, to incessantly you. about this. Mm -hmm. I, as an immigrant here, find and have found... You're not I mean, diverse. I in a completely white <laughs> situation. I was going to. You're not diverse, Andrew. <laughs> no, I know I'm not diverse. I'm, I'm utterly non-diverse. Uh, well, I have a little bit. I could. I I could nip into a few different diverse categories if I wanted to. I'm just not particularly interested. But what I, but what I do think about America is that what makes it and what makes it so wonderful to me, for example, is, is for example, to put it bluntly. Uh, the white people here don't realize how black they are. That in fact, American culture is so much enlivened yes. and strengthened by this incredible contribution of African-American culture, music, yes. dance, you name it. And it's also a place where you can live in Seattle or Miami. I mean, this is incredible. Miami is an amazing place. Seattle, I mean, apart from all the the woke insanity right. is a lovely place to live. This is incredibly, I mean, you go from the north of England to south of England in the 70s and it was all the bloody same and it was all incredibly depressing. And and it was it's what a socialist country really ends up as, which is clinically depressed. I do think that's a wonderful thing. I like living among people who aren't like me. I, I pick up all sorts of interesting things. Now, I believe in cultural appropriation. I believe in the great yes. churn. I believe in all this becoming an America that we can understand to be American, but I, well, I don't I think that is things? a weakness. Now, obviously, it means that there are going to be tensions, more tensions, less social trust to some extent in, in yes. some places. We know this in social science, but surely lamenting something that is a fact is a dumb thing to do. And secondly, how do we make it work? That's the question. I don't think we right. make it work by saying none of you should be here anyway. That's a terrible way to make it work.
Right. No, I don't think Peter's saying that. We're talking about going forward. But three quick things on that. One is absolutely right about about African-Americans. And it's a point I really stress in my book, Adios America. That was the America of 300, three or four centuries about... 80 to 90% white, about 10 to 20% black, and yes, enormous influence on the culture. That is the American culture. And descendants of American slaves, no, they deserve all of the diversity points. And if you're going to have set-asides or affirmative action, but oh no, we're doing all the worst things when you talk about, you know, going forward. No, everybody gets affirmative action points except historic American whites. So the ones who should be getting it, historic American blacks, yes, they get it. But I notice if you look at, if you look at, you know, the corporate boards of directors, wait, what are all these Indians doing here? What did we do to them? This has nothing to do with slavery. Are you kidding me? This is just anti-racism against the historic white portion of historic American, of the historic American nation. Um, but would and, you simply say the following? That in fact, we haven't changed that much. That within a couple of two or three generations, we're already seeing this now with Latino immigrants. That I agree with you, and I would agree with you, the pace of this does make a difference. It really does, the pace and volume, because the ability to integrate people yes. into that America becomes problematic. So I, I totally understand the case for lowering the pace and volume of it, because when that does happen, it does become hard to digest. And we end up with crises that we did in the 1920s when we shut down immigration for 50 years, basically. But about what we need now. But wait a second, your Seattle, but, but Miami point. 15 years time, you know, uh -huh. Asians and Latinos, maybe not so much Asians, but who knows, they will consider themselves Americans the way that Italians do now, that they didn't used to, that other groups that were not traditionally waspy the Irish, for example, are now completely fine with being assimilated into that mainstream. Why will that not happen again? I can certainly see the Latino population, for example, growing more and more integrated, marrying more, becoming more Republican for that matter, which seems to be happening. Um, isn't this just a temporary, in other words, piece of indigestion and that if we could calm it down, yes. we'd be okay? Yes, yes, yes. And I think that is, I mean, I won't speak for Peter Brimelow, but yes, that's the point. We need to stop it now, assimilate the ones already here. Yes, of course it can be done, but not if you're bringing in another 2 million from the most different cultures imaginable who are living among themselves. I mean, to f the fact that we have ballots in 87 different languages, I, I, I promise you they are not speaking Urdu on, on the Senate floor. So this is really unhelpful. But one thing I wanted to say, which is a more abstract point, when you talk about going down in England and it's all the same, Seattle versus my Miami. Yeah, but the geographic distance would be more like you're going from England to Greece, going from England to Northern Africa. And the more we do this mixing, I mean, you lose something of different cultures. When I go to France, I want to go to France. I don't want to go to Algeria. And same thing with London. When I, you know, when I want them, I don't know, in, in the Netherlands, dancing in clogs, and I want there to be tulips and eating whatever crazy food they eat. The more people sort of stay in their own countries where there are fewer transactions costs and there aren't lawsuits of oh, you made a joke about not negotiating with terrorists, but you forgot that I'm a Muslim. Could have said that to anybody else, but not me. Oh, God. For Pete's sake, so much is wasted. So much time, so much money, so many resources. It's just, 
couldn't we get back to being a going country again? Well, part of that involves assimilating the ones already here, dusting off the books. No one's suggesting, oh, although I am suggesting repatriating the millions of illegals Biden is dragging in right now. I mean, this is just outrageous what he's doing at the border. Yeah, it does seem to be overwhelmed because of the signals that we're sending to the world. But uh, an immigration reform that was able to actually enforce border security for the first time ever on the southern border, that also instituted, for example, immigration points. But some of this rhetoric inevitably and just sounds racist. It may not be, mm-hmm. but when you talk about all these people from different cultures, can, you can see how this can be misconstrued or it can gin up hostility in ways that make things more difficult. I agree with you that the whole platitudes about everything diverse is great. There's no problem with another 2 million people coming to the country from Haiti or somewhere. No, I agree with you that that stuff. And But for saying those things, I am regarded as a fascist, essentially, at this point, which I, by my peers, <laughs> which, is, which is not true in a conceivable way. But and you a, wonder an why debate is difficult in this system. country. <laughs> right. We can't really debate immigration, can we? It doesn't really. We would be interesting to have a debate where we said, "Well, what would we? How many would we ideally want to import a year?" Like, what would yes, be the, they won't what would be the best that. number for for potential for economic growth? We know we need some immigration, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How do we wages, come to some resolution yeah. about it? Mm-hmm. And no you're racist to begin with. You can't possibly talk about this. Everyone must be able to come here. And even, and then I'm told as an immigrant, I'm a hypocrite because I came in and now I'm (laughs) shutting the door behind me. Uh, Whereas I did spend almost two decades (laughs) in in immigration hell and bureaucracy and law fees and everything else to try and make myself legal here. And I did eventually do it. And, and, And so immigrants are just gone through that difficult process and played by the rules now have to look and and see people just walking over and and obviously a lot of latinos are in that position too Um, oh yes especially in texas where they see this very dramatically but anyway we're getting further i want to i want to talk to you about who you thought might be a solution to this which is donald j J. trump (laughs) uh right and yes i You are different than many other Trump supporters in as much as you have actually committed heresy and apostasy. You've actually said this guy failed. He took us for a ride, didn't get anything done. Screw him. Why are you the only one to say that? I started before he was president. I could see the sellout coming and I was gentle for the first couple of years and then less gentle. And of course, he denounced me. There are others, not many, obviously Matt Drudge. I think, I think maybe I'm putting too much stress on this, but it's what I was talking about earlier. It's just easier if you're running a radio show or a web page, not to be denounced by this small band of continuing Trump fanatics. Life is easy. It's not, small, it's not a small band, though, and it's according to the latest polls, it's a really big majority wanting to run again. I, I just I know what those polls say. I 
I think that is generally true. Uh, I think what's happening is he's the name and he's actually kind of lucky. He has a simple, strong, monosyllabic name, Trump. He's the, that's the one word that says F you media, F you Biden, F you culture, mainstream. There's no, often the guy who ran last time or just the biggest name. And I don't know if you remember, this is one of the most amusing, you know, number one presidential choice in two years, Liddy Dole. <laughs> it's because people remember her name. But I've noticed because I was attacking Trump for not keeping his promises, for in fact, directly betraying his base, these poor left behind Americans who have been waiting their whole lives for someone to care about them. And he says he cares about them. And he not only betrays them, but he lies to them. People who are more, more tribal, I guess, than I am with the Republican Party, you know, this team, that team, it's almost like cheerleading a lot of the time. Who were attacking me through the four years of my less and less gentle attacks on Trump? All the ones I meet in person are totally on the same page with me now. They either pretend they never denounced me <laughs> or they apologize for having hated me. And I mean, I think my, my original clear, prediction clear, was... Mm, it was clear to me and I think to anybody that he's a sociopathic, crazy person <laughs> that was entirely about his own ego. He was so wrapped up in this pathologically narcissistic, deceptive yeah. way of life that he could never have done anything except destroy things. The idea he could build a wall is crazy. He can destroy <laughs> any institution he's in. He can bankrupt any country he's part of. He can throw his way around until the Constitution is on its knees. But he sure as hell can't do anything positive or constructive. If I could see that, why couldn't you, Anne? <laughs> I have a slightly different take, Andrew Sullivan. And that okay. is, I mean, as I say, I grew up in New Canaan. I've been reading page six since I was a little kid. I was well familiar with what a narcissistic, ridiculous, tacky, vulgar Aravist this guy was. That I knew about. The one thing I underestimated, I in fact did not see at all, is I had no idea how abjectly stupid the man is. I didn't think he was genius. I didn't think he was that stupid. And in my defense, a lot of journalists would ask me during 2016 when I was promoting in Trump We Trust, they'd say, oh, he's not really going to build the wall. And I'd laugh at them. I'd laugh and say, no, the one thing he's got to do is build the wall. And I thought, you know, maybe what you just said to me was right. And then I happened to come across Mickey Kaus being interviewed at Trump's convention in 2016 in Cleveland by, uh, I think, Mike, Michael Isikoff, David Frum, somebody like that, who said the exact same thing to him. He's not. Come on. You really think he's going to build the wall? And Mickey Kaus laughed and said he's got to build the wall. Well, I submit to you that Mickey Kaus and I were right. My theory was if he doesn't build the wall, he loses re-election. He didn't build the wall. He lost re-election. So I think I just couldn't imagine anyone could be so stupid to run on one thing. <laughs> I mean, the columns I wrote during the transition right after his election day, two of them in a row were warning him about George Bush's read my lips pledge. And what does he do? No, he's just a very, very, very stupid man. My prediction for the Lidl, you know, him just living up being the only symbol of the opposition right now was that 
he, he would last as long as Sarah Palin did. You may recall she she brought him out at the huge stadiums. She was beloved basically by the same people, basically the same message. And it was over after three years, which still allows Trump to screw up the midterms. I now think Trump, even though he was president, all she was a losing vice presidential candidate. I think he fades faster than Palin. You really do? I mean, even though currently it looks like he's going to he's going to run clearly and no one seems that prepared to uh, run against him. It's clear to me that 2022 is going to see some pretty significant gains by the Republicans certainly in the House, probably in the Senate, too. Uh, the momentum will be behind him. And what I think I would suggest, what I think is missing from your analysis is, mm -hmm. is the cultishness of it. There is a culty feeling to this guy that, to me, is the antithesis of the American principle of self-government. Yep. It is you're giving over government to him to fix. And, of course, he didn't fix it. Right. But... That impulse, also it's fed by a lot of the most loyal people are these evangelical Christians who tend to do the same thing with their own pastor, their own leaders. They just they just give it up to that person. That is, a, to my mind, very un-American way of doing politics. That It's about governing yourself first and then governing as little as possible outside of that. That's right. my view. <laughs> right. He's not. He's a, he's a wannabe, uh, I alone can fix it dude. I mean... Uh, Surely that is not conservative in any sense of the word. No, it isn't. But I th look, Sarah Palin was very similar and the evangelicals liked her and evangelicals defense and many conservatives defense, especially the left behind people Trump betrayed. And they still, at least some of them still like him. Obviously not enough. You know, the one demographic he lost votes from compared to 2016 was white men. So they're not all falling for it. And I, so you think I, he would lose again on the second run? Oh, he would lose much bigger. I don't think he'd get the nomination. What he could do mm. is screw up. I mean, I'm worrying, looking at the people he's endorsing, which by the way, Andrew, has nothing to do with their positions. This guy, Herschel Walker, he's endorsing in Georgia is for amnesty. No, but he said something, you know, nice. He joined Trump's football club once. We are going to look back for those of you who remember it, those Tea Party days when the Republican Party was, yay, we nominated a completely unelectable candidate, Christine O'Donnell, Richard Murdoch, Todd Akin. We're going to look back to those days with fondness if Trump starts meddling in the midterms. But I think, look, he's already really done things that I think People And I understand, I mean, I kept asking friends because I was really ticked off at Trump, obviously, throughout his presidency. And I'd ask my friends, what, why are you still supporting this guy? And they'd say, it's just he's the only port in a storm. And by the way, I will also say in my defense, well, In Trump We Trust is a great book and any Republican planning on running for office should read it because it describes what was great about the 2016 campaign. That is the roadmap for victory. Don't be an eight-year-old after winning, but, but that is the battle plan. I think Democrat or Republican, I mean, that's part of what I liked about Trump. He really, it was crossing partisan lines on some things like, like free trade, as opposed to, as he always said, fair trade. But the other thing that I, th or the one thing I think Trump accomplished was he woke up conservative media 
which your audience may not be familiar with, but just, you know, FYI, Fox News was one pedal to the metal open borders, totally covering for the amnesty faction in the Republican Party. You'll recall the first Republican debate in 2016, it was staged by Fox News, and it later leaked to New York Magazine, I think it was, that Rupert Murdoch called up Roger Ailes and and said, take out Trump. This is it. Enough is enough. This debate is to take out Trump. And now... I mean, they're just following the followers. Fox has changed. Suddenly, they're covering immigration. Talk radio has changed. I used to be able to count on one hand the number of talk radio hosts, conservative talk radio hosts, who gave a crap about the border. Not anymore. So Trump running on those issues, that's why I wrote in Trump We Trust. That's why I supported Trump, despite his many and obvious failings. Finally, I could vote on this basket of issues. I mean, on the issues, he was very similar to the socialist Bernie Sanders, who was way better than the Democratic Party. Bernie Sanders sounded like Donald Trump on immigration when he ran in 2016 and had it stolen from him by Hillary Clinton. And then, as Daniel Shore says, then he went woke. Then he got on on board with the Democratic Party. We love open borders. We don't care about the working class. And then he didn't do nearly as well. That Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump basket of issues is the winning platform. And I don't care what party runs with it. Right. And I've really enjoyed this. I'm sure I'm going to get shit for it. I try to push you on the questions I want to push you on, but you can't be pushed in many ways. But I want to thank you for engaging in the spirit of this. You'd be amazed that my listeners listen to a lot and read a lot. They're a very diverse crowd. And I'm I mean sure. that politically. I don't mean necessarily in any other yes, way. Yeah. And I'm grateful for you coming on and talking to me like this. And I look forward to seeing you again. I hope Trump fails. I hope you're right. I also Me hope too. that a kind of populist conservatism, the kind that Boris is trying to figure out in Britain, which is not crazy and which is actually beginning, actually beginning to see wage rises in, in England for working class people, mm-hmm. which hasn't happened in quite a while. Well, can I say one more thing? Because um, I thought of the solution for this. Yes. How we don't have to yes. worry about the few remaining Trump fanatics. And that is, I'm counting on people like you and your listeners. I think the Democratic Party has gone so woke, so crazy, so abandoning working class Americans, so anti-Bernie Sanders, that a Republican candidate could say, you few remaining, and we're talking about in three years now, you few remaining Trump fanatics... I'm not sucking up to you. If you vote for us, fine. But I am sucking up to sane Americans. And I think the sane Democrats could make up the difference and more. My view, quite simply, is if the Democrats put their current spending bill and tied it to a wall and real immigration control, Mm -hmm. they would win in a landslide. And I think that's the sweet spot. I think it's left, go left economically to protect working class people, go right on the culture, stop this attempt to deconstruct everybody and everything, including women and men, and and try and stabilize the continuity and cohesion of the country with restrictions on immigration. Just not because we're racist, but because we want this whole show to stay on the road and not fall apart. That's my position. We're not that far apart, except I think, um, yeah, and I didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton, but they gave me no choice. Um, uh, (laughs) And anyway, till next time, Anne. Thanks so much for coming. And we'll see you. Thank you.
Oh, you're so welcome. We have Stephen Pinker coming up, who's, who's super smart. And Dominic Cummings is coming on the show. And you probably know who he is, the guru of Brexit, one oh, of the yes. smartest people on the planet, who is like you now bashing Boris from the outside, having been one of his closest acolytes and inspirers. So it would be interesting to compare the two of you in your apostasy over the over the. So thanks so much. And we'll see you all next week. 